This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushduni. Copyright 1961, Dorothy Rushduni and the Rushduni Irrevocable Trust. Calcedon, Ross House Books. Chapter 6 The Concept of the Child. The child is not only a person, but a concept, in that each culture has its own particular idea and expectation of a child. Thus, the concept of the child in a culture motivated by ancestor worship is radically different from that of today. The child is born into a culture and is loved and honoured as it meets the expectations of that culture. What then is the modern cultural concept of the child? Dingwall has called attention to the emphasis in the United States on the purity and innocence of the child and the prevalence of the idea of, quote, the child as the hope of the future, end quote. Dingwall is incorrect in regarding this as an exclusively American aberration, in that Great Britain is also given to such thinking. Hemming and Balls in The Child is Right can hold that, quote, we adults hold in our hands the future happiness, character and achievement of our country. A child is not born into sin. It is not full of the old Adam. It is a bundle of living, willing, thinking, sensitive flesh, neutral as to good or evil, and it is utterly in the hands of grown-ups. End quote. The purity and innocence of the child is seen basically as a moral neutrality. The child is passive and to be shaped. This runs directly counter to the older Protestant concept of the child as, one, a creature fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God and with awesome responsibilities and yet, two, conceived in sin, that is, born with a predisposition to sin, in original sin, which radically tainted every aspect of his being. Quote, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, end quote. New England school children were once taught. In this concept, in terms of this twofold aspect of the child, education involved two fundamental facts. First, education into the grave dignity and responsibilities of one created in God's image. And, second, discipline in the realisation that this responsibility could not be met unless the old Adam was mortified. This attitude long coloured education. It lingered long in the United States and elsewhere in curriculum content, in the moral emphasis in readers, Longfellow's Psalm of Life, summed up this educational goal, prevalent and influential, long after Protestant orthodoxy receded. Life is real. Life is earnest and the grave is not its goal. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb, driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Let us, then, be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labour, and to wait. Countless children memorised and recited these lines as a part of classwork, 
and learned both to labour and to wait. But children brought up on a concept of life, not as battle but play, and with an emphasis on their needs, can neither labour nor yet wait. For the emphasis now is on the needs of the child, not on the demands and expectations of the culture. Once the literature of youth abounded in an emphasis on what the young man needed to know, what his spiritual armour was, what made him a complete man, a complete farmer, cobbler or apprentice, all on the premise of his responsibility to the culture and his personal incapacity if he failed to meet the requirements of manhood and faith. But the approach now is radically different. Parents are deluged with information about the treatment of this newborn Messiah, the hope of the future and his needs. They are told what parents must know about the needs of their children and the incalculable harm that can be wrought by ignorant, if well-meaning, parents. The needs are made very specific in a variety of books. On, for example, the child from three to five, the children from five to ten, and so on. To have a child now is no longer an act of nature, but a matter of painful research. Essential education is in terms of the needs of the child, not in terms of the requirements of God and society. The consequences, of course, are children who are group-directed and consumption-centred, whose attitude toward life is one of appetite rather than responsibility. The implications of such education are far-reaching. When the needs of the child are central and a moral neutrality is asserted with regard to the newborn babe, then the basic responsibility and fault is the state's and societies, and corrective action is not personal action, but social and statist action. It is not man who needs changing as much as society. Thus, the persistent hope is that a good omelette can be made out of bad eggs, to use an apt adage. The net result is that statism flourishes in such a context. Again, such education is, quote, for life, end quote, and is thus impotent in terms of the realities of life in that life is seen in terms of needs and appetite. As Crabbe has pointed out, education was once in terms of life and death alike, the whole of reality, and had, as an element of its discipline, the concept of the omniscience of God. Quote, Thou God seest me, end quote, Genesis 16.13 was set in the context of responsibility and accountability. This world was, quote, a veil of soul-making, end quote, and that true discipline, quote, which springs from an inner conviction, was the goal of education. Chastening was an act of grace on God's part and a manifestation of care and government on the part of parents in school. That this chastening was faulty and itself affected by the old Adam in the chastener at times goes without saying, but that it was indeed a manifestation of love and concern is equally certain. And while there is much in modern studies of children which is of value, the basic orientation cannot be accepted. The background of its thinking can be understood by studying a work very influential in its day and frequently reprinted, written in 1904 by Home, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Pedagogy at Dartmouth, According to Horn, the goal of all history, evolution and education is this, quote, 
the individual is not the universal, but it will be, end quote. Since Holmes' day, the orientation has become less philosophical, but nonetheless centred on the individual and more and more in terms of needs. If international politics have required a rethinking of education, it has only been to shift the concept of needs from the individual to the state. Scientists are needed and engineers. The responsibility and discipline required are in terms of state needs, not in terms of God and creation in his image. As a result, while curriculum content may improve, educational goals have been further diminished. The religion of statism cannot create responsible people. It can only compel responsibility, ending thereby in the very externalism against which Dabney and his followers revolted so strongly. But externalism is the only resort, other than collapse, if we reject that Christian orthodoxy which is productive of responsibility. Education has thus become statist by default, having no other alternative to Christianity. According to Lazarsfield and Thielens, themselves statists and sympathies, in those colleges they, on their standards, rate as high in quality, 58% of the social scientists are permissive, that is, statists in their faith, and another 30% somewhat so, and only 12% conservative, in the colleges rated medium-high, 44% are statist, 33% somewhat permissive, and 23% conservative. The medium-low colleges are 27% permissive, 24% somewhat permissive, 49% conservative, and the low-quality colleges are low with only 22% permissive, 19 somewhat permissive, and 59% conservative. If these figures are to be believed, we have the sorry spectacle of a very large percentage of all social scientists dedicated to the status concept which is today rapidly destroying all liberty and prostituting all knowledge. Apart from the implicit contempt of liberty and learning, another fact appears in this report. The use of the word permissive as equivalent to a belief in statism, socialism and welfare planning. At first glance, it seems to be a monstrous presumption and some reviewers have spoken bluntly of this as an evasive and prejudicial terminology. There may no doubt be an element of this present, but more than that, it reflects a very definite background of educational faith and language of the school of Dewey. Dewey, reflecting the developed faith of the Enlightenment and of Froebel in enunciating in 1900 the three premises of education, began the association of permissiveness and statism. Two of the three premises declared the primary business of education to be training in group or cooperative living. In a status society seen religiously by Dewey as the true kingdom of God. A third premise declared, quote, that the primary root of all educational activity is in the instinctive, impulsive attitudes and activities of the child, and not in the presentation and application of external material, end quote. Dewey also stated, quote, the conduct of the pupil should be governed by himself according to the social needs of his community, rather than by arbitrary laws. Permissiveness and statism are essentially related. The assumption of responsibility by the state inevitably involves the surrender of responsibility 
but the individual to the group and the state. Every period of social decline and of statism sees also the rise in popularity of the concept of permissiveness. It becomes a basic need of free man, now seen as free only in terms of emancipation from work and responsibility. Statism is liberty and permissiveness to the man in full flight from the responsibilities of manhood, in rebellion against the requirements of God, and with an immature love of play rather than work. Quote, The glorious liberty of the sons of God is to them an unspeakable bondage. The concept of the child in terms of needs and moral neutrality inevitably means a radical reinterpretation of the concept of liberty. Educationally, the child considered in terms of needs must be given automatic promotions to prevent any sense of inferiority, frustration or maladjustment. Socially, the same child must be guaranteed cradle to grave security, lest a psychic trauma be produced. The cure for failure to learn is to devalue learning, and the cure for social failure is to devalue its success. Inevitably, the only teachers who succeed in terms of such schools are those who share in the basic premises, or supinely permit their propagation with the result that, despite the academic degrees, the teachers are less and less teachers and more and more propagandists of the statist creed. Their obvious inferiority has been substantially demonstrated by the Army's draft deferment testing programme, which reveals that not only are prospective teachers the lowest in intelligence and ability of any group, and by a substantial margin, but that those who are headed for school administration are a radically inferior group. As White comments on analysing the figures, quote, it is now well evident that a large proportion of the younger people who will one day be in charge of our secondary school system are precisely those with the least aptitude for education of all Americans attending college, end quote. Educators are unwilling to admit these facts and, when forced to, plead that low pay drives away the better prospects. But the falsity of this claim is apparent when it is realised that the same applies to systems with high pay and the fact that Administrators, usually well paid, represent the lowest calibre of all. Money then is not the issue, because at least administration would draw men of intellectual ability and aptitude. The fact is that statist education, resting as it does in a philosophy repugnant to free and responsible men, does not and cannot draw a high level of men. Christian schools, often paying less, are nonetheless able to draw dedicated men and culturally literate men. This in spite of this in spite of handicaps a young and developing concept in education faces. C.S. Lewis has commented on the educational situation aptly, calling attention to the quote, tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamour for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organs and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. End quote. As long as education is statist, the concept of the child and of man will be statist. We shall be busy castrating and bidding geldings be fruitful. 
it is not enough to maintain private and Christian schools in the midst of a statist culture. The two are ultimately exclusive. In 1922, the state of Oregon attempted to make all education statist, being stopped only by a Supreme Court, being stopped only by a Supreme Court and still dedicated to older concepts. But, as Clark has stated, quote, Under any government, under any government the Christian principle is plain, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God things that are God's. Children do not belong to Caesar. End quote. The Christian cannot rest content with extracting an indulgence himself. He must attack the fundamental status concept, separating all education, including parochial, private, and Christian schools as well as public schools, from the state and from state financial aid in any form. Status education is ultimately annihilation of man as man. To the statists, the thought of the withdrawal of any area from the grasp of government smacks anarchism, the dark ages, and total collapse. To attack statist education is to be vilified as an enemy of education. Even the critics of contemporary education who are statist in their premises are subjected to a vindictive and irrational attack but the unavoidable issue remains. Statist education is the bulwark of this status concept of life, enabling it to mould a child to its faith, to obliterate every form of non-statist culture. There can be no attack on statism without a like attack on statist education. Education must be truly free. The churches have not perished by being cut off from state funds in various countries. Rather, they have thrived and are gaining a new vitality and relevancy. In like manner, the disestablishment of the schools will be productive of true scholarship and vital education. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.